You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, a news podcast made possible by members of The Local. We're recording this episode on Thursday, the 22nd of June. And this week, we're going to talk about a new warning from Sweden's Parliamentary Defence Committee that a Russian armed attack remains a real possibility. We'll look at a new report on diversity that says Sweden is playing a losing game by failing to bring more women and people of colour into the top echelons of business. We'll hear from an expert from the National Institute of Economic Research about some good news for once on the direction of the Swedish economy. And with the summer holidays starting for a lot of people this week, we'll look into the history of why Swedes traditionally take such long summer holidays. And given how the economic downturn has hit people's personal finances, we'll give you some tips on how to enjoy summer in Sweden on a budget. I'm Paul O'Mahony, and to talk about all this, I'm joined today in Stockholm by James Savage and in Malmö by Richard Orange and Becky Waterton. How are you all? Very well, thank you. Good, thanks. Fantastic. Yeah. So, James, this is your last appearance on the podcast before we take a summer break as you're off to Almadolen next week. Can you just remind us what's happening there? And then I'm curious too about what your plans are. Mm. So, uh, so Almadalen on uh, Gotland, it's the big political festival every year. I mean, I say political in a very broad sense. It's about, you know, it's, it's, it's society, it's different groups in society getting together. It's, you know, everything from charities to companies to political parties, all there and, you know, exchanging ideas, loads of seminars, loads of discussions um, and party leader speeches, which is supposed to be the central part of it. And I suppose still is the central part of it, but it's so much more than just the party leader speeches. What I'm going to be doing there in terms of actively doing that, I am I am on a panel on next Thursday, mostly in my role as chairman of the Swedish Magazine Publishers Association, where we're going to be talking about AI in the media, which is a super important issue for us in the media. It's not that we're going to just start writing stuff. You, you know, the articles you read on the local will still be written by humans for the foreseeable future. I and mean, for as far That's as I'm concerned, for, for <laughs> the whole future. That. Yeah, I, I can reassure you of that. And, you know, <laughs> but... Uh, it is, but AI is super important for the media, and it is going to change how we work. And it has already changed how we work. So much of what we already do is, you know, is, is reliant on AI. How our subscription systems work—they have AI built into them. You know, translation. If we're trying to understand a complex document, we've been using um, AI translation tools for years. I'm also going to be there. You know, this is a really tough time for media companies like ours and for all other media companies. So trying to understand, you know, how people are tackling the challenges of, of the media industry right now. And then I'm going to be there trying to understand, you know, what what's important in Swedish society, how, how Swedish politicians and companies and NGOs 
are thinking about tackling everything from, you know, the climate crisis to Russia <laughs> to everything else that's challenging is immigration and everything. So lots of interesting subjects and I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, interesting. And Richard, Becky, um, it's really hot down there in Malmö at the moment. So what are the best things to do when it is as, as warm as it has been recently? I mean, my favourite place and the place I went on, was it Saturday or Sunday on the weekend, is in Rosengård, which is this uh, million project area, just, just a sort of over the railway from where, where I live, there's an amazing open-air swimming pool, which is almost always pretty much completely deserted, but it's a beautiful, mm. funkish kind of 1960s, I think it's Olympic size, but maybe half Olympic size, but it's 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 fantastic. So that's my favourite place because it only takes like five minutes to get there and mm. it's uh, always lovely. And when my kids were smaller, I'd take them to Falkett's Park, which is this sort of amusement park there is in the middle of Malmo where there's a um, ice rink and the, where they have the ice rink in the winter turns into a big paddling pool in the summer which is great for toddlers so you just kind of sit there and they splash about another thing that I really love doing in Malmo but haven't done for ages actually is is hire a boat you can hire like paddle boats in the center of town or even a little boat with an engine outside the station and then you can go through all the little canals and there's a really nice park the slots park and with friends kind of just go through the canal and just kind of I don't know drink beer. have got some of like built-in picnic tables so you can sit mm. there and have your little picnic on the boat. And it's a, yeah yeah, yeah exactly. Really nice. It's a really lovely thing to do. Sounds lovely. How about you Becky? Well I live right by the beach in Malmo which I actually weirdly forget about quite often but um, we love going down there for walks or swims when it's hot even just to like go and you know experience a crowd in in Sweden that's quite new. Uh, after a few years of pandemic uh, life. There can be quite a lot of seaweed in the shallowest bits of the sea down at Ribesbordi, which is the, the beach that I live near. Um, mm. So it's best to go out onto one of the piers and get kind of get in from there so you bypass the seaweed. And the Öresund, which I guess you guys have a different sea. You have like the... We do. We have the Baltic. <laughs> yeah. We do. <laughs> I couldn't remember the... what the name of it was. <laughs> the Russian yeah, lake. the Baltic Sea. We have the Öresund, which is very shallow. So you can like walk out really, really far and it still only gets up to your waist, basically. But that means it's quite nice to swim there if you have kids or, you know, if you just want to go for a paddle because it never really gets deep. Like they can still reach the bottom. We also have a ridiculous amount of fancy ice cream shops in Malmo. I think this is just a thing about Scandinavia in general. They love ice cream, which you would not expect from a country that or a, a region which is quite cold. So I think we probably average like one a day in summer sometimes, like at the height of summer. And then, yeah, super close to our flat, we've got Callis, which is this like cold bathhouse where you can go for a dip in the sea. Although I've never actually plucked the courage to go there, but they've got really good food and fika. And then, yeah, if you don't fancy going for a swim, then there's loads of nice shady parks. Pilam's parking is really nice. It's got a big shady area called the uh, Talriken, the plate, where you can kind of sit in the shade of some trees and you're a bit protected from the sun. You can have a little picnic there. So they're my tips. Excellent. Thank you. So now we know what to do if we find ourselves in Malmö during the summer. Uh, right, on to the news. And let's start with the new report from the Parliamentary Defence Committee on how Sweden views the threat from Russia. What are the main takeaways, James? Well, the main takeaways are that Russia is a major threat and will remain so for decades. I read in one uh, report on this that this was the first one of these reports that mentioned Russia by name. Mm. And um, clearly, you know, Russia is, thanks to the war in Ukraine, uh, the, the threat from Russia is being, is being perceived as even higher than it was. And it warned that just because Russia is bogged down in Ukraine right now doesn't mean 
that the threat to Sweden has receded, that it still has fighter jets, cruise missiles and nukes, weapons that are, that are capable of attacking Sweden. And they said that this is a, an alvajtid, that means a, a, a grave time and a mm. serious time, and that an armed attack on Sweden remains a possibility. So it was quite a, quite a stark report, quite a depressing report, quite a worrying report. But I think probably not saying anything that most people who've been following the news recently weren't aware of. But since the last report, they say that, that the conditions on which Swedish security, security policy is based have fundamentally changed. Yeah. And this was a, an all-party report. It's really interesting. It was, you know, all eight parties were involved in the, in the preparation of this report. And basically, the, the report was approved unanimously. So all parties are, are kind of united around their analysis of the threat situation. The only point of kind of difference there was the that technically the the, the Greens and the Left Party are, remain opposed to NATO membership, whereas the other parties are now in favour. But other than that, there was there was there was great unanimity around around the, the conclusions of the report. Might not be mass, a massive surprise, but Russia is a big threat, and Sweden's worried about it. One thing that was interesting was that the Green Party complained that the report was kind of. They, they said that it wasn't critical enough of Turkey. The Green Party was mm. saying that, like, you're too scared to, you know, you're too scared to criticise Turkey because you want them to approve your NATO application. But then they're against NATO, so they were. <laughs> yeah, no, indeed, it's it's interesting. I mean, you know, obviously the the Turkey issue has given has given the 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 Greens and the Left Party, the opponents of NATO membership, a little bit more ammunition. But it seems that even they aren't being particularly vocal generally in their in the in their anti-NATO arguments now because, you know, they I think even they can see that there that there aren't many good alternatives uh, in this in this situation. Another thing that's interesting in the report um, is that it also mentioned China. China poses an increasing threat uh, to Sweden, they said. And they're saying that China China presents a, a, a threat to global security and the rules-based world order. Um, and that could also have, have an impact. They also pointed out that the threat to Sweden isn't only through conventional military means. It's through other things. It's through disinformation campaigns. It's through cyber attacks, influence operations, and illegal intelligence gathering. Okay, thanks for that roundup. And as always, we'll put links in the show description to all the articles we're discussing today for anyone who wants to find out more. Now, another report that came out this week painted a less than glowing picture of Swedish companies' diversity efforts. Can you tell us a bit about the study, Richard, and what its findings are? Well, it's a study from something called the Albright Foundation, which was started up actually by students at Stockholm University about 15 years ago. But it's grown into the main organisation in Sweden analysing and vetting company boards for their ethnic and gender diversity. Mm. And um, I mean, the picture, I mean, I'm, I'm surprisingly bad, actually. It's, they found that only 89 out of 361 listed companies had at least 40% of board members as women, which is, you know, I mean, I think it's it's uh, less than I think I would have expected for a country like Sweden where gender yeah. equality is quite promoted. But, but what was really bad was the ethnic diversity. Only 2% of people on the boards of directors of Sweden's public listed companies were classified as non-white in the study and only 5% in other leadership positions. It's quite interesting because it's quite rare in Sweden, as we've discussed before, to, to do this kind of ethnic breakdown. So they looked yeah. at people who were from... I don't know how they classified non-white people from sort of African and Indian... They uh, said um, they went on to... They looked at pictures and they classified, I think it was 
Middle East, it was Turkey, Mediterranean, Latino or Latina, black mm-hmm. and Asian, I think. Yeah. But it was all, they said that it was all like based on their own coding of people. So they looked at pictures and then they like looked at, you know, how do they... Because because that's the thing in, in Sweden, the, yeah. the, 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 this data generally isn't there, um, exactly. as we've discussed before. So they, and I suppose with looking at a board, uh, companies always have a picture of their board on their exactly. website. So it, it d- takes a kind of student researcher about an afternoon to, <laughs> to do it. But um, but yeah, but but they found it was only sort of 2%, which is... You know, which is pretty bad. And one of the things that the um, the CEO of the foundation, who's called Amanda Lundertieg, and she is herself a non-white woman who in leadership, mm. she she said that this was a losing game for companies because companies are str- say they're struggling to recruit high highly qualified individuals, and yet it seems they're missing out. They're not hiring from this large untapped talent pile is what is what they argued in the report they were saying you know you know they're missing out from hiring these people so companies and society are losing out because of what seems to be some kind of discrimination in hiring people to boards from different Mm. ethnic groups thanks for filling us in on that study and as you mentioned this issue of racial diversity is something we've addressed a few times on the podcast and I'd recommend that listeners who missed them go back to our interviews with the author Lola Akinmari Ogerstrom and uh, Sayaka Osanami Turngren, who is an associate professor from Malmo University. The interview with Lola is in two parts. Uh, the first one came out on the 29th of April, and we spoke to Sayaka on the 19th of November last year, if you want to go back and find those episodes. We're going to move on to slightly happier news now after the National Institute of Economic Research or Konjunkturinstitut that released a fresh forecast this week that says Sweden's ongoing slump might not impact the labour market as much as many had feared. I spoke to the Institute's Director of Forecasting, Ulva Hedén Vestedal, to find out more about the direction the economy is taking. We have seen that the Swedish economy has uh, sort of moved sideways since uh, 2022 and uh, we're expecting a slight downturn during this year and uh, Mm. keeping up a slow pace next year. What is a bit of a conundrum is that uh, the labour market is holding up this uh, downturn in the economy so that the unemployment rate has not ticked up. We Mm. see an upturn in employment and uh, it's not until late this year that we see a slight downturn in employment. So uh, it's a bit unusual, the two patterns, in the sense that it's mostly a downturn within firms rather than in the labour market. So why is the labour market so strong? We try to understand that as well. Uh, I think when uh, the recovery from uh, the pandemic, firms wanted to hire a lot of uh, new uh, personnel, increase employment, and they have found it. It's uh, difficult to find people with the correct uh, skills. And now when uh, they go in and they see us like uh, they see this downturn, they are probably going to keep their employees at a greater extent. Also, they have managed to increase their prices and keep their profitability up. So it sounds like people don't need to be unduly concerned about losing their jobs. Not if our forecast is correct. I think people are feeling uh, that uh, money is not uh, lasting as long as they did before. Mm. 
that you're being squeezed from high inflation, higher prices, from the interest rates. And if you, on top of that, of course, in some sectors, there are people who will lose their jobs, maybe in the building sector, where we're seeing a big drop in building investments, and also maybe in uh, retail. But uh, if you look at the uh, industrial manufacturing sector and service sector overall, it's looking fairly good, actually. And as you said, you know, people are worried about high inflation and also high interest rates Mm. on their home loans. When do you expect the Riksbank to begin lowering interest rates again? Well, there our forecast and their forecast is quite different. So their forecast is that it's going to be at this level or slightly higher, actually, for even the whole of next year. We think yeah. that maybe the Riksbank actually can start lowering the interest rate by the beginning of next year. I would say there are still great uncertainty about this, but um, that's our view. That was Ulva Hedén Vestadol from the National Institute of Economic Research. Now, before we move on to talk about the summer, I want to recommend another podcast you should listen to. It's produced by our sponsor, the Stockholm Dual Career Network, and it's called Stockholm is a State of Minds. Now, each year, brilliant people from all over the world move to Stockholm and Sweden for work, studies, love, or as an accompanying partner. If this describes you and you're curious about what has shaped Swedish society or would like to know more about things like Swedish TV and pop music or Swedish fashion and inventions, then you should definitely tune in. The podcast, again, is Stockholm is a State of Minds. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. And it's a great tool if you want to become more Swedish. So we're going to talk now about why Swedes take such long summer holidays. If you've been here for a while, you know the score. Work phones go unanswered for all of July. There's tumbleweed on the streets as people head abroad or for the countryside en masse. Uh, We thought we'd look a bit at the history of this as well as whether the tradition of taking all of July off is as strong as ever or becoming less common. Richard, what can you tell us? Well, it took me at least five years living here before I realised how absolutely pointless it is trying to resist it. Like I would try and freelance or write books and just be, Mm. uh, and I'd be trying to sell stuff to the media in the UK or the US and just you get on the phone and you just cannot get in touch with anyone at all. There is absolutely no way you can do any work. So it's totally frustrating. And and also it's, it's very disruptive for if you have family or anyone, if you are the trying to work like it just doesn't work it's just like you're a you're a jigsaw puzzle in that doesn't fit in the whole you you feel like like the Grinch almost you're like the Grinch yeah stop eating ice cream and enjoying the sun I have to write something exactly you just have to you have to be off and then and but but as soon as you do as soon as you give in and do what everyone else does it's kind of beautiful because it's like it's kind of like living in this kind of retirement home it's it's kind of like no one is working so everyone's just kind of moseying about and like going to a lopis or oh I think I'll have a go and eat a biscuit or people just it's just this really kind of chilled out pace and after a few weeks and not that much happens it's just kind of swimming or maybe we'll go into the village or you know nothing happens really but it's perfect you can just lounge in the sun and do nothing yeah exactly not feel guilty 
Yeah. And also people kind of tour. So people just kind of drop into your house or you drop into other people's. And it's really so it's it's the best thing about Sweden, I think, uh, these three mm. weeks of summer and the fact that everyone takes time off at the same time. And it all comes down to Sweden's industrial heritage when in the it Sweden sort of industrialized kind of very quickly all at the same time and there were these huge companies huge like um you know machine ma manufacturers or mining companies and the unions in the early 20th century became extremely powerful and there was a lot of conflict and eventually they agreed to have this thing called an industry semester and that was at the start of the 20th century when factories across the country agreed to shut down at exactly the same time so everyone mm. could have a holiday and it's a very swedish it's much more efficient because obviously you don't want to be producing iron for a car manufacturer that then can't use it you know so 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 everyone kind of agreed to sort of shut down at the same time and there was this industry semester and i think the fact that there is this 3 to 4 week period in july it's, it's a kind of echo of that and then it, over the years it's been codified so in 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 the late 30s there was this annual leave act or semester log and which gave everyone a right for two weeks. And then in the 70s, that was expanded to five weeks vacation. I think, is it three weeks consecutive or four? I think, I you, think you can have three consecutive weeks in the summer months. Yeah. But yeah. you have five weeks total. James is probably the expert on this. Your boss is allowed to tell you that you can't take it at that time, but you have to be able to take it later in summer. You have to, exactly, you have to have, um, you have to be able to take three consecutive weeks sometime in the summer. So I think it's June, July or August, I believe. And and so so you, you can request three weeks in July, but your boss can say, sorry, you can take three weeks in August because we need you to cover. And that's, you know, that's important for companies who who need to keep things moving. Well, a bit like <laughs> media companies, you know, that's, there there are some kinds of companies that can shut down and, you, yeah. you know, this industry semester is qu quite typical. You, you know, you shut down a whole factory for one month a year and then it runs the other 11 months you can't shut down well you can't shut down a news operation like the locals so you know we need people because news happens during the summer too we need people to to work during the summer as well and um you know for organizations like that there there is some uh flexibility um and it's kind of which is obviously obviously necessary for, cert for certain kinds of employers but it does change completely the swedish radio and tv is run entirely by like 20 something summer holiday workers basically yeah. over the summer and which is which is great it's a great opportunity opportunity for, for Swedes who want to get into the media. Indeed, although, I mean, a, a lot of a lot of media have been reporting in recent years that it's been harder and harder to find um, the people to provide that cover during the summer. And I think, you know, and other organisations that find it really, really difficult are um, healthcare. In, in healthcare, it becomes a, a staffing nightmare because you can't just magic doctors and nurses out of nowhere and people don't stop getting ill um, or injuring themselves um, during the summer. So so this right to um, three weeks off is is great for employees and it's a bit of a headache for employers. I look forward to the day when I stop being CEO of the local and I can take four weeks off in the summer and just chill out and not think about stuff. That will be a nice day. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting is that it isn't as universal as it once was. I think I, I've, I'm told that, you know, 10, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, or Sweden absolutely did shut down. But now, obviously, shopping centres are all open and most of the things that you'd want to get in a big city are still open. So that means there are people working in them. But yeah. the exception, I think, I find is, is cafes. I think a lot of city centre cafes do shut down for a few weeks, two or three weeks. My My local does. To my frustration. The place where we always <laughs> buy lunch after the podcast is now closed until August. No! Yeah. Uh, exactly. You see, you are affected by it. So, which is all the more reason to get out of the city and install yourself in your summer house for the next three weeks. Well, exactly. 
If you had one. I don't have yeah. some. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> Me neither, Paul. Uh, so we heard earlier from Ulva Hede and Vestadol that the economic forecast is not as dire as some had feared, but it's still the case that inflation and a weak krona mean that more people than usual will be staying put in Sweden for a lot of the holiday period. Becky, You've put together a guide to how to have a cheap holiday in Sweden this summer. What are your best tips? Um, Well, there's a few different ways you can cut down on your costs for your holiday in Sweden this summer. I tried to pick things that were like specifically for people who actually live in Sweden rather than just saying like, oh, our currency is really bad at the moment. Come on holiday to Sweden because that doesn't really help those of us who actually live here. First off, you can consider getting a travel card if you know you're going to be using public transport a lot. The Mm. best deals are in Skåne, Halland and Blekinge which are all kind of popular places to retreat for the summer anyway, here in the south of Sweden. Uh, While Stockholm's summer travel card offering is only available to under 19s, so it's not really a great option for people that are planning on staying in the capital. For things to do, Sweden's museums aren't free. They, They used to be free, or a lot of them used to be free until this year. But many of them do still offer free entry on certain days of the week or like a combined ticket where you can buy entry to multiple museums and you can save a bit of money by doing that. I've got like lots of details about that in the article, but it would be very boring if I listed them all here. For hotels, I was actually surprised by this, but I know for Ica, it might be the same for other supermarkets. If you're a member of their loyalty scheme, you can get like 15% off or 10% off some amount off Scandic hotels. And there are also some unions, including the largest private sector union, Unionen, who have a 15 or 20% discount on certain hotel chains. So like, if you're a member of a union anyway, you might be eligible for some some discounts you didn't even realise you had. They usually apply in on weekends and during summer holidays. So perfect if you're trying to plan a quick getaway to a, a different Swedish city. An even cheaper option is looking, looking for Vandrehem, which is the Swedish word for hostel. Some of them are actually pretty nice. They're almost like hotels, but obviously it's a bit more basic. You, you maybe share a room or you maybe would share a kitchen with other people. And the cheapest option of all, both for finding somewhere to stay and something to do, is to go camping. You know, use your right to roam the Swedish Allemansrätten, which basically allows you to camp for one or two nights out in Swedish nature, as long as your tent mm. is not too close to kind of farms, pastures, other planted areas, and far enough away from private homes. So you can't just like go and pitch up your tent in someone's garden if you want to camp for longer or if you're kind of a big group this is only for like one or two tents uh, then you have to ask the landowner for permission and if you're not sure if you have to ask them or not that probably means you have to ask them if you're if you're worried if you're kind of a border case so probably best to do so anyway just to be on the safe side you also can't camp just anywhere in national parks or nature reserves either only in specially signposted areas and some of them don't allow camping at all one final point on camping there's um, lots of Sweden is under a fire ban at the moment. So if you are planning on cooking your own food, just be really aware of the rules. In some areas, you can still grill or barbecue in designated areas. In some areas, you can use camping stoves that don't use solid fuel. So you can use like gas stoves. But do make sure you're on top of the rules if you're planning on cooking your own meals out in the countryside. And I mean, even if there isn't a fire ban in place, if you feel like there's a risk that a fire could spread just don't do it because you know you it might it might be particularly dry in the area you're in or it might be you know it's, it's always best to kind of if you're worried that you're going to start a wildfire maybe just don't do it mm. <laughs> don't don't do a fire i, I was just gonna say about alamansretan alamansretan I, th- I think it's quite funny how you're describing it there because the theory and the practice seem quite different it's like you can 
pitch your tent anywhere apart from yeah. <laughs> farmland near yeah. buildings, <laughs> nature reserves. I mean, there's actually not that much left once you've excluded all of those places. So it, it does feel a little, it, it, you know, the theory is lovely, but the practice is actually a little bit more difficult. And I always, one of the things I do find, you know, compared to where I come from, where there's no Alamanzaret, but there are lots of country footpaths that are, that are staked out and, you know, that, that you're allowed to walk across farmland in particular places and those footpaths have to be maintained. You, are, you don't have quite have that, you don't have that many staked out footpaths in Sweden because you've got Alamanzaret and you can theoretically anywhere, walk yeah. anywhere. But actually in practice, it's sometimes bloody hard to find a route through places. So it's not necessarily all it looks like on paper is yeah. my controversial viewpoint. I think Alamanzaretten is much better if you're doing like a day trip. But I think as soon as you start trying to find somewhere to do go wild camping, it becomes more difficult. But I mean, you can walk, you can still kind of explore. Also, Sweden has Sweden has this strandhud, which is like the, the beach protection. So you kind of can't own a piece of the coast in Sweden. The idea is that it all has to be public. Yeah, I think you can own it, but you can't restrict access to it. Yeah, exactly. You thing. can't have like a beachside property with your own private beach. People have to be allowed to kind of go through that beach. So as a general rule, if there's a beach, you're allowed to walk on it, but you may be not allowed to camp on it. Forests, though, those are great because forests, basically, you can walk it, you can walk wherever you like. Yeah. And that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty straightforward. My only experience of it was, was, was my wife for one whole summer between May and September, Airbnb'd our house every single weekend. So basically, we had to find somewhere to wild camp. We were like homeless <laughs> every weekend. And in a way, it was wonderful because it forced us to... to explore the whole of Skorna but I got so sick of kind of trudging up and sticking up the tent every every Saturday morning or oh. that would be if we have any software developers listening that would be an amazing idea for an app it's like you do a map of like all the little areas in Sweden where you actually are allowed to wild camp you know like take off all of the all of the nature reserves take off all of the pasture land and kind of see all the little spots where this exact spot you can put a tent in I did a world. I did a word of the day on Alamansretten. I think a year or so ago, and it was really interesting seeing where it all came from. The rules about how much you can forage. It's stuff like it started from wanderers were allowed to pick as many nuts that they could fit in their hat, like on their way to other <laughs> villages and stuff like that. And it's all kind of come out of this old Swedish tradition of like, if you're hiking across Sweden, you should be allowed to forage enough to keep yourself alive. Yeah. And now it's just like people going and picking mushrooms. Well, I, for one, am glad that we don't all have to forage to keep ourselves alive. You can say what you like about the welfare state, but I think that's probably a, a benefit. I mean, I don't even have a hat, so I, I don't think I'd be able to fit many nuts in my cycle helmet without them falling out of the holes. So. <laughs> that's all for this week. Thank you for listening. And if you like the podcast and are not yet a member, please do consider joining. The media industry is in the middle of an advertising recession and we are more reliant than ever on our members to keep doing what we do. Our panellists today were James Savage, Becky Waterton and Richard Orange. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards and we'll be back again next Saturday with the final episode of Sweden in Focus before the summer break. Until then, take care. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus 
is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.